Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. This is Amy Bird. I'm here with my co-hosts Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. And I am so excited about our guest today. I have been bugging my co-hosts to get this person on. So great anticipation and excitement. I would like to introduce Dr. Robert Godfrey. He is President Emeritus of Westminster Seminary, California, and of all the things that we could talk about with him today. I'm really excited to be able to discuss Amy Simple McPherson, everybody's sister. Hey, Bob, how you doing? I'm doing great. And if you're not excited when you're talking about sister, you haven't thought deeply enough about sister. <laughs> <laughs> she That's was right. all about excitement. And she spells her name right, which is, you know, makes me very happy. Yeah, yeah. Now, Amy, you know, you really built this up, Amy. You Mm -hmm. acted in your introduction. You almost acted as if Carl and I needed to have our arms twisted to get Robert Godfrey. Well, it took me forever to get this. You're acting like somehow we were less enthusiastic. We we like Godfrey, don't we? We do. We just know that he's very important and the chances of him coming on a show like this. That was the whole thing. But he likes talking about Is that a man of his stature is not going to come on something that will risk his career and his reputation but he did Come on, we all know that carl is a reserved englishman as opposed to excitement in principle that's why he resisted that's about it takes several years for me to prepare for the excitement that, is true. Coming that is true i've got to ask this yeah. straight up bob how on earth did a man so passionately committed to the dutch reformed way of doing things develop an interest in Amy Semple McPherson to the point where I believe you've been on pilgrimage to her graveside several times. (laughs) How on earth did this happen? Well, pilgrimage may not be exactly the right word, but uh, yes, I have uh, visited uh, several important Amy sites in Southern California, taking my wife actually one Saturday morning on a mystery tour to her getaway house at Lake Elsinore, which led my wife to observe You really know how to show a girl a good time. (laughs) Are you in possession of any relics? I am not in possession of any relics, but I know people who possess relics. So So like a finger bone or belly button lint or something? I a secondary or tertiary relic myself. So um, you should bear that in mind. I I developed an interest in Amy when I moved back to California from Pennsylvania and discovered that uh, the number of library resources to enable one to study 17th century Dutch scholasticism was limited in California. And uh, I thought it would be fun to have a kind of research interest that uh, would be a little more accessible and perhaps a little more bizarre. And uh, (laughs) uh, I've always been interested in people who were effective mass communicators. And so my choice fell rather naturally on sister. And uh, so off and on over the years, I've done a little bit of actual research on sister so that Mm -hmm. my interest is not purely ephemeral the way the interest of some seems to be. Bob, as strange as it may sound, there may be a few of our listeners who are not actually aware of who Amy Simple McPherson was. Could you give just a brief sketch of who she was? 
I would be shocked by that question, except that last year lecturing in class to seminarians, I made a reference to Mae West only to discover that not one student in the class had ever heard of Mae West. And my world was rocked. (laughs) And uh, so nothing shocks me anymore. Amy Semple McPherson lived from 1890 till 1944, and in the 20s and 30s was probably the most famous woman in America. She was a Pentecostal preacher and faith healer and um, went all over the country preaching and healing and, as I say, became really the most famous woman in America for a time and was a, a notable preacher of her day and a great promoter of the uh, Pentecostal movement. So she really is an important figure in American church history mm-hmm. and uh, deserves to be remembered and immortalized on a program like this. <laughs> well, I first started learning about her in my young 20s, I guess. I had a Christian coffee shop. Well, it was a coffee shop and I was Christian. But um, a lot of Christians ended up coming in there and uh, because I just had Christian books in there. And there was a big four-square church in my town, Frederick, Maryland. Mm-hmm. And that is actually also the private school, private Christian school that a lot of Christian families send their children to. So I thought, what is this four-square denomination? I've never heard of that denomination before. And lo and behold, I uncovered this whole story and history of Sister Amy. Um, Maybe you could elaborate on why we're calling her Sister Amy. Uh, Well, to follow up on the denominational point, she was ordained in the Assemblies of God and then broke away to found Mm -hmm. her own Pentecostal denomination, the Foursquare Gospel. Uh, Yes. Actually, the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel. Mm -hmm. Well, it was common in in Pentecostal circles for early Pentecostals to address one another as brother and sister. And so when she became more famous, she was regularly referred to as Sister McPherson. And I think uh, calling her Sister Amy is probably something that uh, those less serious about her tended to do. I think those in the movement tended more to call her Sister McPherson. But there was this profound sense that people identified with her. And in the biography written by Edith Blumhofer, the subtitle is Everybody's Sister. And there was this sense of connection with her, which was... uh, Part of what made her speaking so powerful, she wasn't in the grand oratorical tradition that made people feel kind of distant from the orator. She was a very down homesy kind of preacher, and so people felt close to her, and so often referred to as, as Sister McPherson or Sister Amy. And she matters, actually. I mean, we've been having a little bit of fun with her, but she matters in terms of American evangelicalism because the things that she began to do and and innovate in those years, the 20s and 30s, are now common in American megachurch life. Are, are oh, they absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. She, she may not have been the, the very first one to do all of these things, but she certainly is one who popularized them mm-hmm. and helped to move them out of strictly Pentecostal circles, such right. as... Uh, Praise bands, mm-hmm. praise songs. Pageants. Illustrated pageants, sermons. Yeah, drama um, as illustrations of sermons. All of those things were really championed by Sister McPherson and uh, made, yeah, well-known and increasingly popular so that uh, 
There are many uh, Presbyterians today who seem not to know that having a praise band in a service is actually a Pentecostal thing. Um, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I'm looking at one right now, Bob, just across yeah, the Yeah, head. don't edit that out now. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that really fascinates me or fascinated me and drew me in to learn more about her is um, I found so many similarities with um, how her personality and the way that she communicated and even how she found uh, the authoritative voice with popular female Christian authors today. Um, when, one, you mentioned uh, being a popularizer. She wasn't so much an innovator, but she did pioneer in the sense of a popularizing a lot of different things in media, especially and um, how she used her personality right. to kind of manipulate drew people in emotionally and even uh, using God's voice, like a personal revelation from God to kind of gain authority and, and vindicate her decisions. And, and even her own personal conflicts, I think, are representative of a broader struggle of women to kind of find expression for their gifts and callings, but also to try to serve as a lot of times faithful wives and mothers. Well, you know, uh, one of the things she loved to do was to tell the story of her life. And I mm-hmm. think that was one of the effective ways she drew people in to listen to her, to appreciate her. Part of the story she always tells, she, she would every um, year on her birthday uh, preach the story of her life at uh, Angeles Temple in Los Angeles. And uh, then she wrote, I think, three or four different autobiographies about her life. And at the heart of almost all of them was how she had been a young widow, how she'd married Harold McPherson to help her raise her young daughter, and then she bore him a son, and she tried to be a good uh, wife and mother at home, and she became terribly ill, and uh, she prayed to the Lord to heal her, and the Lord said to her, I will heal you if you'll go and preach. And she said, I can't preach. I'm a woman. I'm a mother. I'm a wife. I have to stay at home. And the Lord said to her, well, then I'll take you to heaven, but if you promise to go and preach then I'll heal you. And she was miraculously healed and went to preach because she had submitted Mm -hmm. to the Lord. And what was intriguing in her telling of the story is she really never tries to re-exegete the passages in Scripture that are always quoted against women preaching. She just says the Lord told her she had to do it, and she did it. And she treats her calling, in a sense, as something extraordinary and unusual, even though she did very much promote the ordination of women in the mm-hmm. Foursquare Gospel Church. So, yeah, she's an intriguing figure, influenced significantly by her mother, who mm-hmm. had been actively involved in the Salvation Army movement. And in the Salvation Army, it was common that when members of the Salvation Army got married, they promised that they would always put the work of Christ ahead of their marriage. And so both for Mother Kennedy, as she was known in the movement, and for Sister McPherson, characterized their life, this sense that the service of the Lord had to be ahead of family life or um, commitment to a husband. Yeah. And Amy had some issues mm-hmm. uh, in terms of men, which led to a tremendous scandal in her day. And because of her fame, the scandal that she was involved with was front page news all across the country and in different parts of the world, actually. 
do you realize that you are repeating a vile calumny against sister? <laughs> I knew he was going to go with that storyline. Yeah, I, I actually, I actually do not believe that she was kidnapped. If that's what you're <laughs> suggesting, I'm that shocked. Is correct. I am shocked that this uh, unbelief manifested on what a Christian radio broadcast. Um, well, why don't it, you tell us the real compl- story? Okay, uh, thank you, Amy. I'm, I'm glad that Amy's voice is being heard. Um, you know, it, it, it's complicated. Uh, she did have this, yeah, uh, strange relationship with Harold McPherson, her second husband. Her first husband, Robert Sample, died uh, as a missionary to China, and uh, she returned in the United States uh, poor with a, a baby daughter, and she married Harold McPherson probably as a matter of convenience, and then when she felt the Lord had called her back to preaching, she soon sort of left him behind, and they were eventually divorced. And then uh, later in her life, when her mother remarried and her daughter married, she briefly remarried, and then uh, realized she'd made a big mistake and divorced David Hutton, and she said uh, she should have known that a divorced woman should never remarry. That's how she justified the second divorce. So there is this strangeness with marriages, but there was never a hint of sexual impropriety in her life beyond those two marriages. Except for uh, when she was kidnapped. um, Well, what happens is she disappears, (laughs) and she's gone for almost five weeks, and she reappears in southern Arizona claiming that she was kidnapped and held in a desert and then escaped. And her critics began to circulate the story that she was seen in Carmel with a man, and the man was claimed had been her radio engineer at Angelus Temple. And what seems fascinating to me as a historian is that neither of these stories are credible on the face of them. There was no evidence that could be found to substantiate the kidnap story, but the story that she had taken off with a man, there's no evidence to support that either. And the man she had supposedly taken off with has been proven to have been elsewhere during this time. So her disappearance in 1926 really is one of the great continuing mysteries in American church history. Where and was uh, I don't for five weeks? I don't think there's a credible explanation either way. But I find it to be very satisfying to believe that she was off with her radio producer. <laughs> Does this just reflect your Calvinism that always wants to attribute the very worst to everyone that you, uh, you, you come up against? You know, I'm really kind of shocked about this. Uh, um, it's my PCA you know, hyper-Calvinism. Yeah. I, I really do think there is no evidence to support this theory that she mm-hmm. took off with a man. And uh, it was told by people who were already her detractors. So... I think it's problematic. Uh, of course, it was reinforced by the fact that, yeah, it doesn't seem entirely credible that she was kidnapped. But it, it is one of those intriguing mysteries because mm-hmm. she goes swimming off Santa Monica Beach and disappears. And initially, people think she must have been drowned. And then some people said it was a publicity stunt. And uh, her mother in charge at the temple delays the funeral for a whole month. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if Mother Kennedy suspected something was up. And uh, then just three days after the, the funeral, she reappears. I've always thought it would be a great opening line to a, a new biography of, of Amy to begin with the words, her first funeral changed her life. Um, <laughs> I thought that would be sort of clever. Here's yeah. an interesting historical coincidence. Did, did you know that Agatha Christie 
disappeared yep. for 10 days in 1926 yep. as well. Yep. I wonder well, if she was hanging out with Sister Amy somewhere. I mean, that's, you know. <laughs> they uh, went to a spa. Yes. Do you know what month Agatha disappeared? I can, Wikipedia will tell me. No, um, uh, what does it say? Third <laughs> of December, 1926. Third of December. Oh, no. Yeah. See, no, Sister disappeared in May. Oh, so okay. obviously, oh. obviously Sister inspired Agatha. You know, once again, <laughs> Wikipedia actually once gives again, you the it's time. Americans helping Brits out <laughs> to figure out uh, how they ought to live. Um, how, how they ought to manage a good scandal. Agatha actually disappeared at 9.45 p.m. Wow. on the third of December, 1926, according to Wikipedia. Yeah. Well, that's great. So, wow. wow. Fascinating. Wow. Uh-huh. What would Is you that s- where you do all your research, Carl? <laughs> he writes all of his books from Wikipedia. Most of my books are just scissors and paste. Hey, it's a good resource, man. So, everything you ever wanted to know about soap opera stars can be found on Wikipedia. Trust me. So, that is that is good to know. Yes, yes. But what is seriously important about her disappearance is that almost all her press coverage was very favorable, particularly in Los Angeles before the disappearance and afterward a lot of the press turned against her as a kind of fraud and and Mm -hmm. and phony Mm -hmm. and uh, it really cast a shadow over the rest of her life and ministry so it was an important turning point but just from a historian's point of view it's fascinating that this is a mystery that's never been solved because we know she went swimming and then disappeared so she's in a bathing suit she has no Mm -hmm. money she has no clothes she has no transportation and she disappears. So someone else yes. had to be involved. But we all know from studies of history that uh, it's not very easy to keep secrets. And yet mm-hmm. somebody knew what happened to her and everybody kept their mouth shut. Mm-hmm. So that, too, is almost a miracle. Yeah, that's a miracle right there. And what about her death? Do you think it was suicide or accidental? No, I do think that was accidental. Yeah. Um, you know, sleeping pills in those days were very strong and dangerous, and the one she was taking affected short-term memory. So probably what happened is that she took sleeping pills and then forgot that she'd taken them and took some more. And uh, yeah, actually her life was going pretty well at that point. She was only 56 years old or 54 years old. And uh, so I think the likelihood is that it was an accident. That makes me think too. Just between the quote-unquote kidnapping incident and the and her death, just how taxing um, her life was. I mean, she was such an evangelist; she was always preaching. Well, you know, I think that is the background to the disappearance. She drove across the continental United States in 1918, probably the first woman ever to do that. Mm -hmm. You know that. Most of the trip was on unpaved roads. There weren't gas stations. I mean, this was a remarkable undertaking. And she arrived in Los Angeles late in December 1918, really penniless with no followers to speak of. And by January 1st, 1923, she had built Angelus Temple, which seated more than the Crystal Cathedral. Mm -hmm. So in four years, she had attracted enough followers, raised enough money to uh, build this temple that seated more than 5,000 people and would fill it at least twice every Sunday in her preaching. And yeah, those years, particularly between 1923 and early 1926, were just nonstop activity. And she was exhausted, so they decided to send her on a sort of getaway vacation to the Holy Land. 
But, of course, she preached the whole way, including going to Ireland on the way to visit Robert Semple's parents, and I think preached in England, and it may be that Evelyn Waugh heard her there. Then she went on to the Holy Land and came back, but she came back just as tired as she mm -hmm. left, and it was really only, I think, about a month after she returned from this trip that she disappeared. And I think uh, part of the disappearance has to be related to simple exhaustion and a need to get mm -hmm. away. I did talk to a Pentecostal who said once that this is rather well known in uh, Pentecostal circles, that you have leaders who exhaust themselves and then kind of disappear, not as dramatically as she did, mm -hmm. but kind of withdraw from mm -hmm. ministry and then reappear. And I think maybe that's what really happened here. Can you do that and still get paid? <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm sure you can. I'm thinking the PCA might approve it. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, yes, yes, yes. What do you see as her lasting impact on the American religious scene? In some ways, when you, when you read the statistics of the people who go in here and you hear that she was the most well-known person in America, it's, it's a world that's passed. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a world that, that was in some ways chronologically quite close, but seems like a universe away now. What do you think her lasting legacy on the American psyche or the American religious landscape has been? Well, I do think she illustrates, you know, uh, Nathan Hatch wrote a preface to Edith Blumhofer's biography. And in that preface, Hatch said, uh, church institutions in America have been characteristically weak, while charismatic leaders and mass movements have been strong. And I think uh, Amy illustrates that and has reinforced that. And in that sense, Amy is very much still with us. I mean, when you look at the Christian figures on television or even to some extent still on radio, you know, celebrated charismatic leaders like Carl Truman, uh, you're, you're, you're seeing that continuation of the tradition in America of, of strong voices, strong leaders, and she expresses that. She certainly was an, a pioneer, both in the notion that women could be leaders in churches and in denominations, and in the notion, which, as I said, would move beyond Pentecostal circles, that excitement is the way to draw people to Christ. In that sense, of course, she's continuing the great tradition of uh, Charles Finney, and one might, even if one were braver than I, the tradition of the Great Awakening, that there's this right. heritage I knew you were going to say America. that. <laughs> uh, so that very much continues today, I think, that the notion that uh, it is through excitement, it is through the excitement particularly of mass meetings that uh, a lot of important Christian work goes on. I mean, you think about Joel Osteen and the thousands of people who get up every Sunday morning to, to fight the traffic, to go hear him say the same thing, mm -hmm. you know, this week that he said last week. So <laughs> that continues to be, I think. He's not bringing a motorcycle the, on, on stage with him, though. Well, you know, again, disappointingly, she may not actually have done that. Oh, but, no uh, way, really? I know, yeah. She did appear in a policeman's uniform holding a sign that said, stop. But uh, the motorcycle <laughs> thing may not be true. So, um, I'm disappointed. What, what is what is true is that she did apparently originate the phrase in taking the offering. I don't want to hear the the tinkle of coins. I only want to hear the sweet rustle of paper. So, <laughs> oh, oh, I'm, wow. I'm, I'm going to remember that, that one. I, uh, <laughs> yes. my, my offertory <laughs> prayer you, on Sunday. Amy. 
Yeah, yeah. Wow, I, I now have a whole new appreciation for her. <laughs> of course, our own yeah, sister Amy yeah. is about to go on to, is it the Christian Broadcasting she's, Network? She's, she's, she's supposed to uh, appear with like yeah. Benny Hinn and, yeah. and Kenneth Copeland, I think. We're trying to get t- if you're interested, Bob, we're, we're trying to get tickets to be in yeah. the studio for yeah. this. Something like that, yeah. So. Well, uh, just don't be slain in the spirit. We, okay. uh, we don't want to have to explain anything. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. That's right. If you get a selfie with Benny Hinn, that would be that huge. Would be huge. Okay, well, I'll work on that. So one of the things I, I thought is there's a lot of non-charismatic, non-Pentecostal churches who have nevertheless taken up pretty much everything else about what she popularized. And I think, you know, there's a lot of evangelical churches, non-Pentecostal evangelical churches that that probably don't need to be criticizing Amy Simple McPherson because they're doing everything she did just without tongues. Well, right. She created, or probably better continued, the American tradition of providing Christian worship, which is a happy, mm-hmm. kind of carefree, reinforcing of pleasures sort of Christianity. Right. And uh, I actually, I think when you go back and read Sister, she was a better gospel preacher than a lot of later Pentecostals and a lot of later evangelicals. But yeah, it was a happy place to be. It was an exciting place to be. It was an enjoyable place to be. And that's really not the historic approach to Christian worship. That is to be found in most of the history of the church, and certainly not in genuine Reformed and Presbyterian churches, where the main aim seems to be to be as unemotional and boring as possible. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I don't know if anybody's ever been to a Cornerstone church here where, where Carl Truman serves as the pastor, but they have, in a very disciplined matter, removed all vestiges of happiness and joy uh, from no, the church. It's a no-hug so, zone as well. Yeah, exactly. We, don't, we do not encourage yeah, well, that. Well, you know, I, I think that's very important. Um, <laughs> I, I do remember a Pentecostal student visiting our Dutch Reformed Church in Escondido. He was a student at the seminary, and I said to him charmingly after the service, how does it feel to be in a real church? And uh, he smiled and responded, does anybody here feel anything? And, uh, <laughs> that was an excellent question. <laughs> So, you know, I think Sister was an important and in many ways positive influence in her own day. And I think she continues to raise stimulating questions about what Christian ministry should look like. And, you know, during the Great Depression, when there were many illegal immigrants in Los Angeles who could receive no government assistance, she opened a uh, commissary that provided a great deal of food and clothing and help to poor people in Los Angeles. And so she was a person of wide vision and uh, mm-hmm. remarkable activities that I think are well worth remembering. Hmm. Well, on that note, Bob, I'd like to say thank you very much for, for coming on and sharing what I've known is a, a great passion of yours and probably an unexpected one for those listening. It's been wonderful to have you on the program. Fascinating to hear about the, the life and impact of Sister Amy, if you'd visit, uh, if you're listening and want to visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, we've got a, a number of books to give away. Uh, Sister Amy, The Life of Amy Semple McPherson by Daniel Mark Epstein, or if you're an American and mispronounce it, Epstein. Uh, please enter for a chance to win that. And while you're on our webpage, remember that we're a viewer-supported podcast, and if you feel led to make a donation, then please don't quench the spirit. Please uh, do as do as you're being led at that particular point. Uh, and so it just remains to thank you once again, Bob, for being with us. And on behalf of 
myself, Todd Pruitt, and our very own sister Amy. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to being with you next time. for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... What does it mean to be Reformed, and then why are you calling it Reformed Catholicity? Why should Protestants still be drawing from and being helped by Aquinas? We miss the fact that historically it's the battle for the doctrine of God has been just as, if not historically, more significant. But what role does being socialized in a specific culture play in our theology? That interview is next time. Join us then. Whenever your name comes up in conversation, Bob, I boast that, yes, my wife uh, persuaded Bob Godfrey to pose for the one and only selfie that's ever been taken. (laughs) (laughs) She showed it to us. I have it on my cell phone. (laughs) If I actually ever discover what that means, I I may be flattered or insulted. So, yes, I have to continue to cultivate my reputation of technological uh, invincible ignorance, yes. We were both staying at David Hall's last year. My wife, whenever I come back from staying at somebody's house, she always says, did you do anything to help? So while Anne and David are out, I did the dishes. I washed up the dishes. Wow. Um, Bob <laughs> then posed for a photograph that must have been taken with a rapid reaction camera, I think, pretending to wash the dishes oh, nice. as some yeah. sort of way of trying to compete with me. <laughs> so, we're always yes, trying to exactly. compete with Carl. Yeah. Yes. You know, Carl set a very high standard. I- find that hard to believe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is true. true.